0: Let's pray together. Father, we believe uh, that your scripture is uh, breathed from you and that it is useful, Lord, in our lives. Lord, it reveals uh, who we are, and it reveals the attitude of our hearts, it reveals to us our need. Lord, it uh, sheds light into the path that is before us that uh, you would have us to be on, and so it's useful to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. And it's sharper, as the scripture says, in a two-edged sword, and it's able to divide between even soul and spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you might minister this morning. And, Father, you know there are things that, uh, that go on in our lives that are ahead of us, that are behind us, that weigh on us at times. And, it, Lord, in your mercy, we just pray, Lord, that we would be able to put all those things to the side and and leave them there so that we might hear from you. And so Jesus, we ask for your blessing on our time, this holy time, to sit under your word as your people. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we are in Acts chapter 13, a passage of scripture that we, uh, we have already begun considering and I'll remind you that from chapter 12 to chapter 13, there's this transition looking at God's work amongst the Gentile people, primarily the gospel going forth to the Gentile people. And it started, as you may recall, with that church in Syrian Antioch, about hundred miles or so, maybe a little more than that, north of Jerusalem, where, which was sort of the headquarters of Christianity in the first decade or so following uh, the ascension of Christ. But now it's moved outward. And again, that's the goal. The goal was to to go into all the world, first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that began in that city there of Antioch. And there we learned that Antioch was a a very healthy body of believers. It was a well-taught body of believers. It was a group of believers that were able to not only sustain themselves in their walks with Christ, but to be able to go out and help others in their walks with Christ. And that led to the missionary efforts of the Church of Antioch, where they would send out Barnabas and Saul uh, into the uttermost parts of the earth. And when we were together last time, we looked at the way in which Barnabas and Saul, they took with them this fellow Mark, and they set sail to the island of Cyprus, about 40 miles off of the, the mainland, this little island floating out in the Mediterranean. And it was the island from which Barnabas himself was from. And, and we don't know why they chose that as the place to go. But I have to imagine to some degree, Barnabas is like, I'd love to reach, you know, my second grade teacher. And I'd love to reach the kids I play Little League with. I'd love to go home. Let's go, see, can we go there, Paul? And yeah, sure. You're in charge. Let's do it. And so that's where they went. And we read this. This was Acts 13 2. It says, now while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Look at verse 4. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. A lot of names there. Seleucia was a port city on the mainland. All right, so they go to the port city. That's what it says. They went down to Seleucia, and then they sailed to Cyprus. That's the name of the entire island, and they landed in a particular city in Cyprus or on Cyprus, which was the city there of Salamis. And so there's a lot of names, so they don't have to confuse us. It we'll would just take a moment with them. And we learned, again, in review, that the first thing that they did in the city of Salamis is to go to the synagogue. And there, Paul and Barnabas began to proclaim the word of God from the Old Testament. They began to teach about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's holy predictions, his prophecies, that a Messiah would come and that Jesus indeed was that Messiah. And so as we look at the end of verse five, it says, they arrived at Salamis and they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And we'll see that becomes Paul in particular That becomes his trend. Every town, every city pretty much that he went into, he would first find the Jews, whether they were officially meeting in a synagogue or if there weren't enough Jews in town, if they were meeting on the edge of some riverbank somewhere, and he would go and he would proclaim to them. And sometimes some of them would receive, other times some of them would drive them out. But they would begin with the Jew first, and then they would go to the Gentile. And so I imagine here in the city of Salamis, it doesn't say this, but I imagine as they left the synagogues and they wandered through the streets and they went to their hotel or wherever it was that they were staying, they told anybody that they could come into contact with about Christ. Jewish person, Gentile person, it didn't matter because everyone needs the saving work of Jesus Christ. And they would proclaim that wherever it was that they went. Now, if you look at verse 6, the last verse of our review this morning, if you look at verse 6, you see it says there, now when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. And so Salamis is on the east coast, uh, kind of in the northeast corner of the island, it's somewhat of a circle of an island if you think of it that way, or an oval of an island in some regard. And Paphos is in the bottom left corner, bottom left corner of the island on the west coast. And so they traveled all the way through the island. Our friend Luke doesn't tell us this, but no doubt they stopped at other villages along the way and they talked with whomever would listen to them. But what Luke does do is highlight two particular events. The first city they come to and the way in which they went to the Jews first. And then the the second city he highlights maybe is the last city on the island that they come to, which again was the island of Paphos. He says there they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and then he points out this event that occurred there, that they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name, or name was Bar-Jesus. Again, Luke doesn't tell us about every single event, but he does draw our attention to these two. First the Jewish in the synagogues, and then this false prophet, this magician, and we're going to spend a lot of time considering him today, this man by the name of Bar-Jesus. Uh, that was a nickname, Bar-son-of, so the son of Jesus. And then also we're going to learn about this, uh, another fellow named Sergius Paulus. So let's read the whole account. We'll start in verse 6. We'll go to verse 12. It says that when they had gone through, excuse me, when they had, yeah, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, was also, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at Elimus and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." How about that? Quite a passage. Now, we're introduced to two men in those few verses there. The first, again, is this guy, Alimus, also called Bar Jesus. The second is Sergius Paulus. Kind of a fun name. I feel like I'm watching the gladiator movie or something. Sergius Paulus. And verse 7 points out that Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of the region. And as I mentioned to you in our last study, the city of Paphos was the headquarters of that particular region, the capital city. And so Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of the island, who lives there in the city of Paphos. Paphos, again, the capital city of the, the Cyprus. Cyprus, a region of the Roman Empire, a province. Now, a Roman province was one of the administrative regions outside of Rome proper. Are you with me? So you have Rome proper, you know, the city, all that kind of stuff. The Vatican today is there, you, you, maybe you've been there. Rome proper. Outside of that, you had these provinces that were scattered about. They were administrative regions. Cyprus is one of them. You may have heard of some of these other names. Syria, that was a Roman province. Judea, Cappadocia, Galatia, Dalmatia. All of them were Roman provinces. Cyprus here is another one of them. There were two types of Roman provinces. There were those that required troops to keep the the subjects in line, and Judea is an example of that. That's why there were Roman soldiers there when we study our gospels and things like that. Judea is an example of a province that required troops. Cyprus is an example of a province that did not require troops. So there were two types of Roman provinces, those that required troops and those that did not. Those provinces that required a troop presence were administered directly by the Caesar via his military commanders. All right, so the Caesar was in charge of those provinces that required a troop present. Those provinces that did not require a troop presence were administered by the Roman Senate and they were directly under the control of a proconsul, which is what our friend Sergius Paulus is in our passage. That tells us that Cyprus was a peaceful area, that the people that lived there, they were done with the idea of rebelling against Roman rule, and that they had sort of accepted their lot in life. As the ruler of a peaceful province, that gives Sergius Paulus time to not have to worry about military matters, but to instead focus on other things. And one of the thing that he, or one of the things that he focused on was learning. You see, in my version, it says that he was a man of intelligence. And uh, some versions say he was a man of learning. Quite literally, that could be interpreted he was a man of thought, or he was a thinker. And so Sergius Paulus was a thinker. He was a person that was searching. He was a person that didn't just kind of accept life that was around him as the way it was, but he wanted to understand why is it like this? And why is my heart longing for that? And why do I seek to know these particular things? He was a thinker. He was a man that gave thought to deeper matters. We might call them spiritual matters. And so that's likely the reason, If again, you look at verse 7. It says that he summoned Barnabas and Saul... And he sought to hear the word of God, because he's a deeper thinker. It's probably the reason why he brought a guy like Elimus into his inner circle, because Elimus was a man who seemingly understood some of the spiritual matters. But we can see the fact that he had Elimus alongside of him, but that he still longed to hear from Paul and Barnabas, I think that tells us that he wasn't satisfied with what Elimus could give him. And he wanted to go even deeper still. Elimus didn't give him the answers to the longings that were inside of him. Now, it tells us in verse 6 that Elimus uh, is called a magician. It says there that they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet. That word magician, it's the same root word where, uh, that the wise men are often referred to. Remember the the magi that came to visit? Same root word that is found there. And so there's not necessarily anything wrong with a magi. A magi was an individual that was looked at as having superior knowledge. Not necessarily because, you know, it was zapped into them, because they dug into things. They, They knew things a little bit deeper. And so the magi were these trusted individuals, these advisors. Now, some magi would say that their authority, their power, came from sources outside of them, outside of books or something that they might read, but the gods, for instance. And that's where our friend Elimus is. He's of that ilk, if you will, of the Magi, a person either having or pretending to have special insight and wisdom that had been specially revealed to him, which he'd be willing to share with you for the right price. And so it wasn't uncommon in that pagan Roman society for the leaders to hire guys to come in and be their advisors, to kind of speak in. And since this guy has this superior knowledge in this superstitious society, they he brought him into his inner circle. And so Elimus becomes a close advisor to Sergius Paulus. So far, so good. So far, nothing bad about it. Okay, even though he's, you know, he's called in some versions, it's he's called a sorcerer. Um, That sounds bad, Uh, but hold on so far Uh, to be a Magi in and of itself wasn't a wicked thing. The second thing, though, notice what uh, he is referred to by Luke. He's referred to as a Jewish false prophet. All right. So he's clearly a false prophet. That's bad. And that gives us some insight into what type of a Magi he actually was. He was a renegade Jew. He had some knowledge of the Old Testament. He referenced things in the Old Testament. He no doubt used the name of Jehovah when speaking. And so he's this renegade Jew among the Gentiles pretending to be this marvelous wonder worker with the goal of earning a profit for himself. Again, other versions do refer to him as a sorcerer a borderline on the borderline if you will of the occult a little bit of judaism kind of in here to give him some respectability but tapping into some satanic source as well to grant him some superhuman powers or wonders or the ability to know things that the average person wouldn't know and again was it real was it fake i don't know but there was this smattering of truth And I would suggest to you that's the reason why Paul is as harsh with him as he is. Because Paul, it's important for us to know. Some of us look at Paul here, we think, oh, I want to be like Paul. I just want to go in and tear people down. I want to let them know and blind people so they learn some lessons or whatever. If that's your attitude, we could chat after. That shouldn't be our attitude at all. And Paul doesn't do that when he goes into every single city. But he does it with this guy. And I would suggest to you the reason he does it with this guy is because this guy had a modicum of truth, a little bit of truth, which makes it all the more deceptive. And so Paul, as we see, he puts him in his place. Last thing that we learn about this fella is he has taken the name Bar-Jesus, and the bar there, it refers to son of. And so he's taken the name the son of Jesus. That doesn't sound too good. It's possible. Jesus was a very popular name in that day, it's similar to the name Joshua today, you know, lots of people named Joshua. And so it's possible it was just random and coincidental that his name was Jesus, the Jesus like we all know and love. More likely, it's probable that he, took, he knew enough about Jesus of Nazareth, who we would refer to as Jesus Christ that he was seeking to sort of tap into the success of his name or the success of Jesus's miraculous powers. We do see an example of that in Acts chapter 19. That's the passage where the demons say, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who are you? You may recall that that passage because those guys were calling on that name. And so if that's the case in this particular scenario, he's calling himself Bar Jesus, and in doing so, he's saying, I'm the son of Jesus, and I'm able to work wonders even as he did. A smattering of truth. Just a little bit of a level of truth and proximity to godly things. Well, for a while, he had a good thing going in the city of Paphos. He had risen all the way up to the inner circle of the guy that was in command of the entire island and he begins to realize that his good thing is beginning to be threatened and what's threatening it is the teaching of barnabas and saul because as a part of the teaching of barnabas and saul no doubt they're saying things like there's one place for truth there's one place to look for the answers there's one place to look for your searching and perhaps they glance over at bar jesus and it ain't him And so, Bar-Jesus, Elimus here, he recognizes and he realizes, I'm going to be out of a job pretty soon. Sad, isn't it? He doesn't care about truth. He cares about how he can make a living and a profit, and profit for himself. He sees he'll be out of a job. And so, we see in verse 8 that he seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And he does this by opposing... Barnabas and Saul we read that also in verse 8 he opposed them again with the purpose of seeking to turn the proconsul away the word that is used there for opposed it's actually the word uh, which is it's the word withstood it's the idea is sort of planted his feet and I'm not moving any further you're not getting past me that kind of thing so it speaks of an active opposition to Paul and Barnabas so Paul and Barnabas share their things, and he comes right in, and he tries to refute their particular things they're going to share. Or as soon as you know, service is over or the time together with Sergius Paulus is over, they pull him aside, and they try and don't listen to anything he said. They don't know what they're talking. And, and he just tried to get them. Uh, he tried to take Sergius Paulus away from the faith. We don't know exactly how, but whatever it was, notice Paul's response. It set him off, and he it elicits a very strong response on his part. Look at verse 9 again. We read it, I know, but look at it again. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him. He stared him down, and he said to him, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I jot this in my in my notes a lot, yikes, is what I put there. Again, a very, very strong response from the apostle Paul. Stares him down, looks him down intently, and then calls him the son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. He goes on, he says to him, you're full of all deceit and villainy. And then he accuses him of perpetually making crooked, the straight paths to the Lord. The straight way for a person to get to the Lord, this guy is trying to throw people off from those straight paths. Some versions use the word fraud. That's what he calls him. He says, you're a fraud. You're a liar, you're a deceiver, you're a son of the devil. And the only thing you do is lead people astray from God. He says in so many words, you call yourself the son of Jesus. But in reality you're nothing more than the son of the devil and you are an enemy of all righteousness again really strong words you can picture the scene i hope you can picture the scene there now i think it is important though that we pull back here and we make sure that we don't conclude wow saul was a hothead people say this about the apostle paul that he had an anger problem because of some of his interactions maybe he did not because not this one though because what does it say It doesn't say Saul was so angry that he did this. It says Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at the man, and then said the things that he said. And so we can't say that Saul was responding in the flesh. And that was the warning that I tried to suggest a few moments ago. We don't want to blame everything on the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we just have a bad attitude. And maybe it's for the right reason, but it comes out the wrong way. And I'm just doing the Holy Spirit's work. You need to be careful with that. Make sure it's the Holy Spirit that is filling you if you're responding in this particular way from pe- to people. But here, in- indeed, we know it says, Luke explicitly states it, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked in Saul's way- life in such a way that he gave him a discernment to understand that Elimus was more than a guy that had just gone astray himself and needed to see truth, but rather that he was a fellow that was causing others to miss the mark of salvation and to go astray. And that at the heart of his opposition was the devil, ultimately. And so Saul not only calls him out for that opposition, but also you see here he pronounces a visible judgment upon him. The visible judgment being a physical blindness. A physical blindness that will match the spiritual blindness that a is under and seeking to keep others under as well. And so Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is this clear discernment that allows him to see this man through and through. The Holy Spirit illuminates Paul's understanding so that he could see that at the very heart of this man, what was really there, the devil, essentially. And he responds. And again, it seems like a very strong response. Indeed, it it is a very strong response. And the fact that it's recorded for us in our Bibles is almost certainly an indicator that this isn't something that happened every day in, uh, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul it's something that luke takes notice of and he records for us because it isn't something that occurred all the time it wasn't typical if you will in that regard but realizing that sergius paulus was a sincere seeker after the truth this sorcerer Elymas is an enemy of that truth and the holy spirit reveals that to saul and saul calls him out because what was he doing he was keeping sergius paulus from coming to the place of salvation and that stirred the heart of the holy spirit what is god's desire for every man woman kid on the earth is that they would come to a right and understanding of who jesus christ is and what he has done and this man was keeping people from that and the holy spirit was stirred and he stirred his servant uh, paul and paul called him out again as we see in verse nine there he calls him verse 10 he calls him the son of the devil. That's the same terminology that Jesus used when he confronted those men who were deliberately trying to keep others from the faith. I think Will read this passage, uh, or at least a portion of it, John chapter eight. You are, he, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now he spoke that to a group of religious leaders. He said, Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him and when he lies he speaks out of his own character for the devil is a liar and the father of lies and again jesus said and you're just like him to the religious leaders the severest words in all of scripture kind of those harsh words that we read and we're like wow that's tough i write yikes and things like that the severest words in all of scripture in both the old testament and the new testament are reserved for those who stand between men and women and the truth. Again, another place where some of Jesus' harshest words are recorded are reserved for those that would keep others from coming to the faith. Not for people like the guy on the cross next to him that was executed for his crimes, or a guy like a Barabbas, for instance, but for those that would keep others from coming to the faith. Toward the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, there's a passage, a long passage in Matthew 23 where there's eight different woes, Jesus says, woe unto them, woe unto them, that are recorded. This is the first of those and it sets the tone. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, experts in the law and those priests of the priests, the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. He says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so imagine a person on a journey of faith coming to the edge of heaven and there are those religious priests slamming the door in their face. Jesus says, that's what you do. You keep people from entering in to salvation. And he says, woe unto you. You keep people from entering in, and you're not going to enter in, he says to them. Those are very harsh words. And Jesus reserved those words for the religious leaders, those false teachers, those false guides that were keeping people from getting right with God. And it was to them that Jesus spoke so strongly. And it's to one such as them that Paul now speaks to. It's this fella, Elimus. Again, he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? He describes his character, full of deceit. He's a fraud, a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. And then he describes his deed, his sin. He says, "You." will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's his sin. You're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord so that people can't get there. And as we read in verse 11, he pronounces upon him a judgment, physical blindness, to go along with his spiritual blindness. And as the second half of verse 11 points out, it affected him immediately. Luke says that immediately, Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And I have to imagine most people pulled away from him for fear that whatever hit him is gonna hit them too. And here's this guy out there, helpless essentially, blinded at the immediate result of the words that Paul had just spoken. He went about seeking people to help him. Alimus wasn't the only one impacted by this interaction look what luke says in verse 12 he says then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the lord god's holy spirit vindicated the teaching of saul and Barnus, barnabas from the opposition of Elymas if, if somebody had to say well who do you think god's with here is it the blind guy or the guy that said, you're gonna be blind. It seems that God's Holy Spirit is with the latter. But notice this about Sergius Paulus. It says that when he saw these things, he believed, but notice what actually impacted him. So Sergius Paulus was not in, uh, impacted by Paul's declaration of judgment and then the immediate declaration or example of that judgment. But notice what it says at the latter half of the verse that it was the teaching of the Lord that astonished Sergius Paulus. And it was because of the teaching of the Lord that he believed. And so as amazing as this miracle of Elimus' sudden blindness was, the teaching, it was the teaching that the proconsul heard that caused him to believe and of which he was astonished. His astonishment was at the teaching of the Lord. And we don't have a a rundown of everything that Paul shared, but no doubt he spoke of the doctrines of God's grace and God's mercy and his gracious gift of life in Jesus Christ through the cross. And it was those things that astonished Sergius Paulus. It was those things that he had been a man of thought seeking an answer to. It was those things that his heart just was not at sort of at rest with Elimus' teaching, which caused him to say, go get these two men that I've been hearing so much about. Bring them back so I can hear from them. Again, Sergius Paulus was a man of thought. He was not a man looking for a show. Rather, he was a man seeking to satisfy the longing of his heart and his mind. And he was a man whom God was gracious enough to reveal his need to, as he has to many of us, if not all of us here this morning. That we were a people that recognized our need. We are a people that have recognized our need and that got us on the journey of searching for something to meet that need. Sergius Paulus is just like you. He was searching and it was the teaching of Paul and Barnabas that settled that search for god had revealed to him that that searching the need was only met through jesus christ and the work of christ on the cross and it was that truth not so much the things that he saw but that truth that astonished him as i hope it continues to do for you and i that truth brought him to the place of faith But I think what's important for us, because a lot of us here have been Christians for a long time. I came to know the Lord when I was a senior in high school about 30 years ago or so. I had learned a lot of the things of the Bible and stuff like that growing up. But somewhere around my senior year of high school, my friend Robin invited me to a youth group Bible study. And I began to hear the Word of God taught and explained. And it astonished me. It got a hold of my heart. I began to understand it, and I began to apply it to my life. And, I, and I, was, I was just on fire for the Lord, like sort of that infatuation stage that a lot of people have, you know, the boyfriend or girlfriend or something. That's all you can think of initially. That's kind of where I was. But I imagine if you're like me, you probably have had an experience like that. But then five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years go by, 30 years go by, and you're like, yeah, the Lord, he's cool. I like him. And that. But you're not as infatuated, perhaps, with him as you once were. The story of salvation doesn't grip your heart, perhaps, like it once did. And I'm in- impressed in the scriptures because I see that this astonishment that Sergius Paulus experiences at the start of his faith is not something that has to fade away in our lives. And the reason why I say that is because we see the Apostle Paul, who close to 20 years later, 20 years after these events, maybe 30 years or so after he had become a believer, writes these incredible words. He said this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I... Am the worst, but for that reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. And notice how Saul concludes. He says, "Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, Amen." Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. He says it twice here. Now, if we were to compare our lives with Paul, I suspect you and I probably, we do more sin than Paul did. And yet something was going on in Saul's heart 30 years after he had come to the place of faith. And what happens is the closer we get to the light, the more impurity is revealed. So that Paul, in all honesty, the closer he grew to Jesus, recognized even more sin in his life, even though outwardly he was probably doing less sin in his life. But he was recognizing attitudes of the heart and tendencies that were not of the Lord. And he calls himself, again, in all honesty, the worst of sinners. And then it concludes, he says, "And God saved even me so that I could go and tell others so that nobody could say to me, "Well, now I'm too far gone, because I'm the worst." And if he could save me, he could save you. That's Paul's point in that little section there. But then notice how he concludes it. And I know we don't have it on a screen for you to look at. So he says in verse 17, it all ends with what? Astonishment. He says all those things and he concludes it with praise. It just comes out of him. I don't think he was planning on writing it. But he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, Now to him, honor and glory. You see, 30 years after he had begun walking with the Lord, he was still astonished at his salvation experience. And my prayer for myself is that if I live another 30 years or so on this earth, that after having walked with the Lord for 60 years, I'll still be astonished that he would have saved such as me. And my prayer for us as we go about our day today and into tomorrow this next week is that the wonder of salvation would fill every one of our hearts and it would lead every one of us tomorrow even to just giving God the honor and the glory that he is due. That he would love such as, one such as you and that he would deal with your sin problem. Paul was still astonished at the goodness of God. May that be said of you and I. And so our friend here, Sergius Paulus, he's amazed, he's fired up, he's believing. He is the first recorded convert on this missionary journey. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the ruler of this province of Rome. And what we know historically is he would not be the last convert of this missionary journey. He would not be the last convert. On the island of Cyprus, they've uncovered some archaeological inscriptions dated to that period in which it states, it it mentions his name, Sergius Paulus. And it speaks of how he and his whole family, though Roman authorities, embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and had become believers. And so he wasn't the only one on that island, even his whole family, and no doubt many others as well, believed. And so Barnabas and Saul, they kick off this first missionary journey. They're having some success. Perhaps it seems like limited success, but certainly not limited in the life of Sergius Paulus. His eternity was transformed. His kid's eternity was transformed because of this missionary effort. But Barnabas and Saul, they kick off this mission. They face opposition. It's important for us to see that. You will likely face opposition. If you have this sort of change of heart, this calling, To send forth, I'm going into my workplace, and I am going to reach my work for Jesus Christ, or at least I'm going to do everything I can to reach my school, my place of business, my neighborhood for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you right now, if you set off on that mission, you will experience opposition. You will have folks that will come against you, some well-meaning, seemingly nice and sweet, that'll say, you know, you don't want to be so divisive, and you want to be careful, and all these kind of things others that will come right out and oppose you Paul and Barnabas experienced that and so it shouldn't surprise us when the enemy of the faith ultimately the devil wants to keep people from coming to the faith and opposes our efforts to advance the faith just as he did here with, Elimus, with uh, through toward Barnabas and Saul but Barnabas and Saul kept ministering and they kept going forth And they dealt with opposition as they needed to deal with opposition. And they will eventually leave Paphos and they'll go to the next place. And so if the opposition comes, just continue to be faithful to what the Lord has called you to do. That's your goal. That's your calling, our calling. Faithfully proclaim truth, which is the word of God. And allow God to work in the hearts of your listeners, even as he did in the heart of Sergius Paulus. Amen? Amen. Let's close our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving a guy like Sergius Paulus. Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that those that are sincerely searching for you are responding to a work that you've already done within them. And Lord, you are faithful. you're faithful to bring those folks to Christ. And Lord, you brought Paul and Barnabas to that scene with this guy, Sergius Paulus in mind, and you saved the soul. And Lord, there's people in our lives. We pray that you would use us to advance your kingdom in their lives. Lord, we know opposition will come, and many times it's scary, many times it's disheartening, Many times we don't know what to do with it, and so we pray for your wisdom. We pray like the Apostle Paul here that you would fill us with your spirit to know how to respond in those circumstances. Lord, we pray that we would not be uh, dissuaded from what it is you've called us to do, that we, we would continue to go forth faithfully and minister to others. And finally, Lord, would you be so kind today, so gracious today, to fill every one of our hearts here that believe was sort of a, a fresh understanding and reminder of what it means for us to have been saved from our sins and from judgment and to be brought into relationship with God through the Holy Spirit by the work of Jesus. Fill our hearts with that wonder we ask in Jesus' name.